The people of Israel, I'm in Judges 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midian, hand of Midian, seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for the help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abrazerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and he has given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Build my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So father, please take this scripture as relevant today as the day that it was written. Teach it to us. Edify your church. Bring us together in Jesus name. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Well, if you have a Bible, open it up to Judges chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to bring up my notes here real quick. We're continuing on in our series entitled, This is God's Church. It's a value statement that we've had since the beginning, and now we're trying to build upon it so that we properly understand it and what it means for our, our body here at Redemption. And we uh, kicked off the series a couple weeks ago, and we're talking about five different houses that we are saying are false houses. We're using the language house because that's the language that was used in the scriptures in Solomon's prayer. And then in Isaiah 66, when uh, through the prophet Isaiah, God asked the question, hey, what kind of house are you going to build for me? And these five false houses or five false churches are something that uh, anyone can fall prey to. And we don't want to do that. And so we're studying them so as not to do that. The first church was the powerless church. The powerless church is powerless because it doesn't stand on a proper doctrine of Christ and who he is and who the scriptures say that he is. And then it is also powerless because it is not fueled by prayer and fasting. 
Today, we're looking at house number two, and I want to get us back on schedule for our series. And so we're going to uh, take what was supposed to be two weeks, we're going to jam it into one week here and uh, lay out what the natural house is, the natural house. Now, let me tell you about the natural house. The natural house oftentimes sits on top of the powerful house. The natural house sits on top of a church that typically does have good doctrine. I will explain a little bit today where um, bad doctrine comes in and destroys the natural house, but, but oftentimes the natural house can have good doctrine and can stand on good doctrine, but still operate as the natural house. The natural being, of course, in contrast to the supernatural house. And the natural house contains God because it thinks it needs to help God out. In essence, it says to God, hey, God, let us help modernize you. We'll give you new language. We'll give you a new style a little bit, and we'll help uh, God. We'll help you understand the modern man. The natural house often views ministry and ministers through the lens of the world. How, who would God or who would the world use? What would they look like? What, what style do they use right now? The, the natural house often ignores the Holy Spirit and prayer because, quite frankly, it can get weird and uncomfortable. Other names that we would use to describe the natural house are, well, it's practical. It's realistic. It's modern. It makes sense. Now, the natural house, by the way, does bear some fruit. The natural house isn't completely void of spiritual victory. Oftentimes, you will even see some life and movement in the natural house. And I'll explain where we see that in the text in a little bit. Here are some warning signs sometimes that you've fallen prey to the natural house. People are attracted to the natural house because, well, it's cool. It's cool. One of my favorite things about our church, I tell this to people all the time, like, tell me about your church or tell me about the church. And then I say, one of the things I love about our church is our church is not, it's not cool. We're not cool. No offense. Like, it's just, it's not, it's not that cool. It's great. If you're offended, you probably think you're cool. The, another warning sign is sometimes it diminishes the supernatural. It falls dangerously close or does fall into the sin that Paul warns the church about in 1 Corinthians of quenching the Holy Spirit. In the natural church, people fall in love with the methods or the organizations rather than Jesus. It would be like if somebody said, oh, I love redemption. I love redemption. I had so much fun. I love redemption. And uh, it's so great. And, and, and the band is good. And I love redemption and, and all of that. And it's like, hey, have you met Jesus there? No, but I love the church. In the natural church, people, uh, it's hard often to distinguish between the church and the world. In contrast, the supernatural church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The supernatural church sees God use unlikely people and unlikely methods to do unlikely things. The supernatural church doesn't belittle the best methods of the day, but it also doesn't bow to them. This is the natural and the supernatural church. Now, in our story today, I just read the text, and so I kind of want to just summarize to you what's going on here, because what we see in the story is two things, the situation and the solution the situation, and the solution. Now, let me tell you first the story at the practical, literal level. This is a real story about a real time with real people. 
And in the natural story, what was going on is the, uh, the Israelites who had been given the promised land by God had now been in the promised land for a little bit of time. And as they were in the promised land, they were supposed to um, uproot the enemy, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uprooting the entrenched enemy and, and, and then existing uh, in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey was the biblical term, uh, where they were supposed to be an example for God. But at the beginning of this story, it is the exact opposite of that. At the beginning of the story, the Israelites are uh, public or private in their faith, not public. The Israelites are operating in fear, not faith. And they are sowing without any reaping. And this is not the nation that God had wanted to plant in the promised land. He wanted a nation that operated in faith, a nation that was a public display of his goodness, and a nation that reaped a bountiful harvest. But instead, they were experiencing the exact or the complete opposite. And as they were experiencing this opposite in this particular notion or particular time, what happened is there was a nation by the name of the Midianites. And the text is pretty clear. It says that God gave the Israelites over to the hand of the Midianites. And so every year around harvest time, and this was happening for at least seven years, the Israelites would, uh, they would sow all of their seed. And, and then after that, they would wait for the harvest. And as they were gathering all of the harvest, it says the Midianites would show up in massive numbers, like too many camels to count. And so there the Midianites and their camels would come up. And as the harvest would come up, they would just show up and they would say, thank you so much. And they'd grab all their food, like a bully in the lunchroom. They would show up and steal their lunch. And it said that there was no sustenance. They would steal their animals. They had nothing at the end. The Midianites were their lords. The Midianites ruled over them. And so the Israelites just repeated this pattern for years and years and years. And we get a little snapshot of the perspective of the Israelites because uh, in a conversation between Gideon, who would end up being the unlikely hero in the story that he was having with the angel of the Lord, he begins to ask the question, God, where'd you go? How'd we end up like this? What happened to your supernatural power? Weren't you the same God who brought us out of Egypt? Where are you now? Why are we here? How come you've let them win? And what the Israelites would do in the story, uh, we see this as just a picture of how they would operate. Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And so what the uh, Israelites would do, what their natural response was to this opposition and to this enemy was just to try and hide in the wine press and get a little bit of wheat. If we can just get a little bit enough to feed our family, if we can just get enough to like feed our family and maybe one other person, uh, and it was kind of everyone for him and herself or their family, and they tried to just operate in hiding so that the big bad Midianites wouldn't come and steal their food. And that was their natural response. Why don't we just hide and, and do the best that we can? And this pattern, as I said, it repeated year after year after year after year. And this story right here that we see is, is supposed to be for us a picture of the natural church. It's a picture of a church that operates not the way and in the power that Christ had wanted it to operate. 
It's a picture of a church that is operating in um, fear instead of faith. It's a picture of a church that is sowing much but reaping little. It's a picture of a church that has decided it is easier to just find little um, enclaves, little uh, um, hiding out areas, and, and to just operate in private instead of public. And sometimes the church, like the children of Israel, can do exactly what Gideon did and go, God, how'd you let this mess happen? How did you let the world get like this? Where is the good, the good world that we once had? Where is the, the righteousness? And, and what about all of that reaping and sowing and that milk and that honey? Where did it all go? God, what did you do? Aren't you the same God who used to perform miracles? Where are those? And what this story is, is an internal evaluation for the church. It's a moment to stop and to go, have we slipped into the natural in the face of the Midianites? See, the, the bigger picture here, the picture uh, of Israel representing the church here, is when the church has done exactly what Israel did. And God told them, let me tell you, God says, how you ended up right here. In verse 1, he says, you've done evil in my sight. In verse 10, he says, you have not obeyed my voice. Instead, you have worshiped the God of the Amorites. In short, what God is saying is, the way you ended up here is because you didn't do what I said to do. Church, Christian. This is not a blame the world. It's so evil and they're so bad. No, you would expect Midianites to operate like this. This is what the world does. This is how Midianites act. It's an evaluation for the church to step back and say, what have we done? How have we ended up like this? It's an internal check. And I think it's an indictment of the natural church. It's an indictment of the natural church then who has forgotten the voice of the Lord. It's an indictment of the natural church then where it has fallen in love with the God of the Amorites in whose land they dwell. Said more clearly, it's an indictment of the church and, and of, of believers just loving the same things that the world loves, operating in the same way that the world operates and not walking in the power that God had for his church and for his believer. Now, as a way to fight back against this, often then what the natural church does is it does exactly what Gideon did where he came and he kind of hid and he tried to get little victories. And there have been times of little victory in the history of the church where um, we, have, we have won over some Midianites and celebrated as a result where we've, we've gotten to hold on to a little bit of our work and we go, look, we're, we're winning. The Midianites and their camels are still all over the place, but we've got this little wine press over here, and this wine press is good. And so we, uh, we, we look at it with, with, with minor church growth, or we look at it with, um, uh, we, we celebrate certain stories, and this is not bad to do. Like, like when, you're, when you're getting all your lunch stolen, if you get to like, hold on to like, a little bit of your dessert, you're still happy, Right? And it's not that you shouldn't celebrate that, because we should, but it's not what God had in mind. It's not, it's not, it wasn't his big picture. 
So the, the, so the, the natural church then, what it does in this moment, it, it does what, what Gideon did there. It tries to come up with natural responses to the hand of the Midianites. Now, here's what I'm going to call these natural responses. You won't find this on Google um, because I made this term up, okay? So here it is. Diplomatic spiritual conversion efforts. I'll give it to you one more time. Diplomatic spiritual conversion efforts. Said another way, hey, Midianites, we aren't so bad. Stop stealing our food, please. Or in the modern way, hey, world, the church isn't really that bad. Look, we like your music. We're willing to compromise some of our beliefs. We apologize for hurting you. We want to be friends now. And so what the natural church does is it, it just uh, uh, attempts to look as much like the world as it can doctrinally, methodologically, practically, and says, look at us. We look like you. Can't we be friends? Can't we just, can't we buddy-buddy up next to each other? And what the natural church does then is it, is it, it uses these diplomatic spiritual conversion efforts to hide away a little bit of wheat, if you're following the metaphor. And let me tell you what these diplomatic spiritual conversion efforts are. Typically, it starts like this, and we have seen this historically. Number one, it is to weaken or compromise certain doctrines. I shared with you guys, I think I shared this with you. I, I just got finished reading a book that was written in 1923 by the guy who founded Westminster Theological Seminary. And he founded Westminster Theological Seminary because he had recently been dismissed from Princeton Theological Seminary back when Princeton Theological Seminary was actually an Orthodox seminary. And because he held on to Christian doctrine, like orthodox, good Christian doctrine, he gets booted from Princeton, walks across the street, and opens up Westminster Theological Seminary. And he opens it under the idea that the church had been shifting so much to, uh, on, on doctrine and methods that it had ceased to be the church. And he wrote this book in 1923. I just recently read it. And if you didn't put a title on it and you changed some of the English, you would have thought it was written in 2021. Because this uh, process, by and large, has been occurring in our country for probably about 100 to 120 years, where the natural church has taken over. And the first thing the natural church did is it began to compromise on doctrine as a way to try to appeal to the Midianites. And it starts with lesser doctrines often. Oh, you think the virgin birth is weird? So do we. We can get rid of it. Oh, there are per certain parts of the scriptures that don't seem historically or scientifically accurate. We can come up with a theory on how to dismiss that. You don't believe in the complete inerrancy of scripture. That's okay. We can still be friends. And then over time, these smaller doctrines uh, emerged into larger doctrines. And what the church kept doing is just kept um, uh, um, splitting away those doctrines from, from traditional orthodox doctrine of the church and ended up with something that ceases to even be Christianity. And as that happens, the church becomes natural. It operates in its own power and its own strength because God can't bless what he didn't create. Or won't. That's the, kind of the first effort 
But here's the interesting thing. What started with smaller, lesser doctrines as a way to kind of bridge the gap or to modernize the church and to befriend the Midianite world, and what the church soon found out, that as soon as it gave a little bit, you know what the Midianites wanted? More. Because you know what the Midianites will always do? They'll never be satisfied with just a little bit of the wheat. They're always going to want all of it. The Midianites are always going to say, okay, you gave us that doctrine. Now we'll take this one. Now we'll take that one. And the Midianites will just keep taking it all. Now there are denominations 100 years later that don't even really believe in the biblical picture of Jesus or salvation that 100 years ago were fighting for the gospel. The Midianites came in and took it. Second way, or the second type of diplomatic spiritual conversion effort that the church um, operates is to begin to uh, just try to love what the world loves. And oftentimes, this is more for the individual Christian than it is for the church as a whole. The individual Christian then um, becomes a natural Christian in the sense that they, they, like it was instructed here, they fall in love with the gods of the Amorites. And so Christians, in an attempt to look at um, non-Christian friends or uh, in an attempt to look like the world, will say things like, well, you know, just because you love God doesn't mean you can't love or worship or bow to the same things that the world does, like sex or power or wealth or money or influence. You can view those things the exact same way. And so then what happens is what emerges is, uh, uh, is a group of followers of Christ who don't really look that much different than the world and really worship the same things. And statistically, even if you take a survey of a bunch of Christians and ask them basic Christian questions around um, sex, wealth, power, money, all these things, the answers are pretty much the same as the world. And so what, 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 the, what the next attempt then by the church and these diplomatic spiritual conversion effort is like, hey, listen, all you have to do is intellectually believe, but you don't really have to change your life that much. And then the, the third effort, the diplomatic spiritual conversion effort that we see in the natural church was this, to widen the gospel. And so there's this gospel, Right? Like there's the gospel that, that we were dead in our sin, right? We were born in as children of wrath, as uh, Paul writes it so poetically in Ephesians chapter two, and we were born into this sin. And Romans three, no one looks after God. No one seeks for God, right? It's a reference to a Psalm that, that, that had been written, but by grace we're saved. And so God steps in, Jesus stepped in and he rescued us and he went to the cross and he died and his uh, sacrifice was the payment of our sin and he, he paid it all. And then, and then we get his righteousness. He imputed it to us in that moment. He rose from the grave, giving us victory and power over sin. This is the gospel. But then there's a lot of things in there that the, the Midianites were like, well, we don't like the part about people being born in sin. So can't we just all agree that we're all good? Everyone's good. Let's just widen it a little bit. Well, I don't, I don't like the idea that Jesus had to die because murdering, God murdering his son, that just seems weird to me. So I don't like that part. Let's just let's widen it a bit. Well, I don't like the idea that the blood had to be shed as the payment of sin. So why don't we just, let's widen it a little bit and just say that that was a cosmic example of love. Well, I don't like the idea that, that if, 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 if you don't believe in Christ, like Jesus said, as the judge of all the earth, then, then you don't spend eternity with him. I don't like this. So let's widen that a little bit. 
Well, I don't like that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. He must not have meant that. There must be other ways. So let's widen it a little bit more. And you might say to me, Stephen, widening the gospel is in the scriptures. And you're right, it is. It is in the scriptures. Jesus said, wide is the way to destruction. It's right in there. And so you can, we can widen the gospel all we want. Jesus warns that this will happen. People will widen the gospel, but the wide path leads and narrow is the way that leads to life. And so that was the third effort. Well, well, if we widen our gospel enough, will you embrace us? Will you embrace this movement? Will you embrace the church? If we just keep stretching it out. And that was effort number three. And then effort number four in this diplomatic spiritual conversion effort was, was this, to, to be driven uh, by feelings instead of doctrine. Driven by feelings instead of doctrine. By the way, when the Israelites were in their issue that they were having right now, God did not send a therapist. Say, hey, therapist, therapist angel, therapy angel, go talk to Gideon. He is sad. The Midianites are stealing his lunch. Comfort him. No, he sent a prophet. He sent a prophet. And he sent a prophet to tell them, repent and turn back to God. That's what he sent. And fourth effort, the fourth diplomatic spiritual conversion effort is, is that the church then or Christians begin to be driven by feelings instead of doctrine. And I think there are two ways that this plays out. Play, the first way that this plays out is the church, the natural church. Um, what it does is, is it feels like it has to look so much like the world. And in one way it does it is that when the emotional movement of the day pops up, the church feels like it needs to hop on the train because it doesn't want to be left behind. The church doesn't want to be seen as irrelevant, right? The church doesn't want to be seen as out of touch or, or um, not modern. And so something pops up and all of culture hops on a train and the train is moving quickly. And the church is like, oh no, we missed the train. Let's hop on and let's chase the current fad. Let, let's, change the, or let's chase the language of the day. Let's, uh, let's chase what the world is excited about right now and what the world is, is presenting as the solution. And the theory underneath the natural church is this, that if we don't show the world that we care about the same things that they care about, if we don't share, show them that, uh, that we're on the train with them, then they'll never care about what we have to say. And so let's hop on the train with them. Let's ride the train. And you know exactly where that train is headed. Let's ride the train. And, in, and as we get in the train and as we look like them, right when we get to the very end, we'll say, oh, we tricked you. We're actually on this train because we love Jesus. And so every couple of years or months right now, it seems culture gets excited about something and the natural church hops on. Look at us. We're hashtagging too. Aren't we relevant? Don't you love us? Can't we be friends? And in that moment, when the church hops from fad to fad like that, what it's doing is surrendering the point that we have a universal solution to every problem and it's called the gospel. 
When we think we have to chase fad after fad, what we are ultimately saying in that is that we don't believe that we have the one solution that fixes all of those other problems, which we do, the gospel. And so we don't have to. And so maybe over the last year, if I could just speak very clearly, you've been like, Stephen, how come you don't talk more about BLM? How come you don't talk more about elections? How come you don't talk more about COVID? How come you don't talk more about vaccines? How come you don't talk more about this? How come you don't talk more about that? Like, when are we going to talk about that? Like, shouldn't you be talking about that? Like, shouldn't we hop on the train that everybody else is riding? No. You know why? Because we have the one solution to every one of those problems, and it's the gospel. See, the solution to the world's problem is not going to be discovered by the world with the problem. The solution to the problem had to come when something supernatural would step in to the natural. And there are a lot of issues in the world, and we should care deeply about them as followers of Christ. And we should scream out, get off of that train, and Come over to this one. It's a train of peace. It's a train of life. So that's the first way that happens. Second way this happens, by the way, um, that, that, that Christians then become driven by um, feelings instead of doctrine. It's actually, well, I'll explain. It's actually almost being driven by feelings to not be driven by feelings. Get that? To be driven by feelings, not to be driven by feelings. Here's what I mean by that, okay? Um, what happens is, is to, we're driven by feelings to get rid of anything that we're uncomfortable with. And so there's something about God in the Bible that we don't like. Well, that's okay, I can get rid of it. There's something about hell that we don't like. That's okay, I can get rid of it. There's something about Jesus that's, that's okay, I can get rid of it. It starts doctrinally, but then it moves experientially. And so what the natural church does then next is, is, is what it says is, um, okay, all of the things that are experientially weird about our faith, let's get rid of them. Mostly what happens then is we just take the Holy Spirit and we say, hey, can you come back later? Because you do some weird things sometimes. And so what we do is we just, we strip the experience out of our faith, the experiential out of our faith. We, we strip the Holy Spirit out of our faith. We set him, God, aside and operate in the natural. And guess what? There is some progress in the natural. There's a church in the book of Acts that got planted without the Holy Spirit, and they were converting to the baptism of John, which, according to the text, seems to be a baptism of conversion, like spiritual renewal. And so there is progress in the natural. There can be progress. You can't throw it all out. But then Paul shows up and says, what do you guys think about the Holy Spirit? And they're like, who? And then he tells them, something supernatural happens. And so what happens is we get driven by feelings to not be driven by feelings. And so what we do is we take out the experiential element of our faith, we set it aside, and we become very natural Christians. And when we're natural Christians, there is some fruit that occurs in our life. There is some change that begins to transpire in us. And I'm not saying or negating that that isn't true, because it is true. I have a term for you. It's my second made-up term of the day, which is a record. So this will also not be on Google. Here's the term. Recovering Christian naturalists. 
recovering Christian naturalists. Here's my, here's my proposal, I guess. I think many of us, many of you, are recovering Christian naturalists. I hope you're recovering. Recovering RCNers, recovering Christian naturalists. And you might be a recovering Christian naturalist if you have intellectually decided that you believe in God, you have Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you have made that confession of faith. And you have believed. But you have never felt the love of God. You might be a recovering... Christian naturalist, if, if morally you have begun to align your life more and more with the scriptures, you have understood what the Bible requires of you as a follower of Christ, and so you have aligned your heart, or I'm sorry, you have aligned your actions with the scriptures, but you have never been melted under the gospel. You're in rehab. You're a covering Christian naturalist. The funniest way this tends to play out, and this is not universal, but it's pretty true. The funniest way that this tends to play out as I watch some of you work through rehab is in the way you worship. And so you, you start showing up, and intellectually you're, you believe, and, and morally you comply. And by the way, you're so worried that you will become an emotionalist, right? You're so worried about becoming an emotionalist. I often reference my favorite preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, uh, preached at Westminster Chapel, not known for being crazy, okay? And Westminster Chapel in the 50s, right? They had organs. That's pretty much it. And what he wrote, or in summary said, is, what the modern church does not need to fear is being emotionalist, but in ignoring the Holy Spirit altogether. I can say this, my friends. I'm not concerned today that the church does not properly understand what Paul said when he said all things must be done in order. I think we're really good at it. I do. And we must submit to that text and we will. We will. Before I get into my example here, let me, I have loved many things in life, as you have. I have loved tacos. I have loved football. I have loved my wife. I have loved Jesus. All four of those things have driven me to tears at one point. Right? If you have never cried over tacos... You are missing out. If not tacos, certainly puppy chow or something else, right? Because things that mean something to us move us. I think it was Wesley who said it this way. He was on a horse riding out, he said, and I was overcome by a warm feeling that drove me from my horse to my knees. 
Recovering Christian naturalists intellectually or morally comply with the scriptures, but they haven't yet felt it. It hasn't yet moved them. And this whole week, we're going to look at a psalm where David talks about how it has moved him. And the whole thing is predicated on previous experiences that he has had with God that has moved him. And I know what emotionalism is. Emotionalism is when you worship because you're seeking a feeling. And emotionalism is when you worship because you want other people to see you. Emotionalism is when you do all of these things, but your life never changes. And you worship with God like this on Sunday and you live like a whatever the rest of the week. I get it. I know what it is. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being moved by a God who loves you, has chased you and pursued you. And you have received his grace. It is funny to watch it play out with people, though. I can name a dozen or so that I've watched walk through this process over the last few years. And uh, it, typically, it starts a recovering, a rehabbed Christian, a recovering, what did I say? Recovering Christian natural. Nat where's my phrase? I made this up. Okay, recovering Christian naturalist. And oftentimes, it'll start in the way you sing. This is week one. And I know some of you are like, I am worshiping God like crazy in my head. Good for you. Tell your face. <laughs> right? And then it's funny because week two, this begins to happen. <laughs> week three, what a beautiful name it is. The name, some of you are like, you should sing more, I know, of Jesus. Typically, then, there's a lot of weeks between this one and the next week. But then there's a week where this begins to happen. You even have to change your posture. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. This next one is my favorite. What a beautiful name it is. That you're like positioned. Of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. The name of. What a beautiful name. Of Jesus. You see it. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. And then there's this week. What a beautiful name it is. And like Wesley, you would say, a warmth melted my heart. And you don't even care anymore. What a beautiful name it is. 
What a powerful name it is. And you don't even care. You don't even care anymore. You will probably never intellectually arrive at that point. Your morality will never push you there. Oh, but being melted by the grace of God. Feeling it. It will. And so this, this is the situation. It's the situation of the natural church. It's the, it's the situation of the natural Christian. And you ask then, well, what's the solution? Like, what can be done? What can be done? What's the solution? Verse 11 begins to tell us, it transitions into the solution. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth. The first part of the solution is that God shows up. God shows up. God shows up. The first part of the solution is for the natural Christian or the natural church uh, to be operating as it's operating. Gideon, he's hiding in the wine press and he's in there and he's operating and he's doing what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, God just shows up. And so the solution starts with God. God shows up. And then what God does after he shows up is he calls the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and he, and he calls Gideon. And Gideon is an unlikely hero, and God is going to call him to unlikely methods. And typically, when God shows up, that's exactly what he does. He calls the unlikely, and he uses unlikely methods. And then he says this, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The third thing that begins to happen in the solution is that the, 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 the called begin to operate in a new type of might. Not in natural might, but in a supernatural might. Not in, a, not in a might that makes sense, but in a might that only makes sense when you look at the cross. And so God shows up and he interjects himself into the situation and he calls the unlikely and then he gives the unlikely a new type of might. I believe Paul said it the best when he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus said it this way, that the least would be the greatest. And the promise then rests here on Gideon as it rested on Moses, as it rests on each and every one of us, according to the Great Commission, that in that moment when he shows up, he says, and I will be with you. I'll be with you every step of the way. And the way this whole story plays out, God is trying to make a point. And before Gideon is willing to move on, he asks God for a sign. And so God shows up and he gives him a sign that he is there with him. And the sign happens at the terebinth tree through a sacrifice. And if you've been around here long enough, I've told you that typically the terebinth tree in the scriptures is just a picture of the cross. And so when God shows up to give a sacrifice at the terebinth tree, it's just a picture of the ultimate sacrifice, Christ, that happened on the different tree. And then what that does is that infuses that new type of might into Gideon. And Gideon begins to be obedient. And his obedience is funny at first. Because God says, I want you and your new type of might to go rip down the altars. And Gideon's like, I'm in. I'll rip them down. But I'm going to do it at night when everybody's sleeping. Because I'm afraid. And sometimes, in that hour, obedience starts... We're like, I'm all in, God. As long as nobody sees. 
I'm all in, God, as long as it doesn't hurt. But then it begins to grow in Gideon, and God calls Gideon to be this general, and, and Gideon, as the general, is given this army of something like 30,000 or so people, and they're going to go up, and they're going to attack the Midianites, and God takes the army of 30,000, and he dwindles it down to 10,000. Gideon's like, whoa, okay. And then, to make his point abundantly clear, in chapter 7, of verse 2 of chapter 7, God goes, hey, Gideon, I'm going to keep dwindling down your army because I want you to know that when you see the great victory, there should be no way that you can take any credit for it. And see, in the natural church and for the natural Christian, there are sometimes certain things that we see progress in and we can almost go, you know what, that makes sense to me. I can see why there was progress and I can see why there was victory and I can see why there has been change. Like, look at all the work that I've been doing. But God says, here, I want to bring a victory that is so incredible that the only thing you could do is say, that was him. And everything we've been talking about over the last few weeks is that the church that Jesus came to plant positions itself in a place to see God do something where we say that could have only been him. And so then God takes the army of 10,000 and he dwindles it down to 300. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, I've seen the movie 300. I would go to war with those guys. Give me 300 Spartans. We can take down a nation. I don't think that was the point of this story. It was not like, Gideon, here's 300 Spartans. Go do it. This was like, Gideon, here's like 300 hipsters at a coffee shop. They're vegan. They haven't eaten meat in four years. They have no strength. Go win. Right? Like, that's not who I want to go to war with. I want somebody with a F-250, a don't tread on me sticker, and a lot of meat. Right? <laughs> Give me 300 of them. Nope. He's like, you get 300 Birkenstocks. Go. <laughs> and they win. And they win. They drive out the Midianites. They uproot them, the entrenched enemy, and they send them running. Now, our story is a little different, right? Because like, it's not our goal, nor should it be your goal. Like, we don't want to kill the Midianites. We want to uproot the enemy, Satan, the prince of the power of the air of darkness that might be self-entrenched. We don't want to kill them, uproot them, and send them out. We want to convert them. We want them to know Jesus. So our prayer is a little bit different, which means we need a different hero than Gideon. We need another unlikely hero. And so God showed up. God came down in person, in the flesh, Jesus, he was an unlikely hero, unlikely methods. He chose a cross and martyred him. The world thought it was foolish, but it was the greatest battle plan ever. For three days later, he came triumphantly out of the grave, having chased the ultimate Midianite, the ultimate God of the Amorite away, rendering him powerless. And then planted a church, his church, that was to be infused with super natural power through his Holy Spirit.
I don't really have an end to today's sermon. I haven't had one all week, which isn't normal for me. Izzy, why don't you come on up here? Because I can see in the story, as we all have, that the natural church, the natural church, it, I think we can all see how it'd be easy to slip into the natural church and how it would be easy to get excited about small victories when the Midianites are still stealing all of our lunch as long as we have enough sustenance. And I think the whole point of the last few weeks for us as a church has been, God, is there a way to move from the natural to the supernatural? Like, is there a way to move from what we are experiencing right now to, to what we could experience? Is there a way to move from hiding in the wine press to driving out the enemy? We can't fabricate. You can't manufacture moves of God. But I think you can beg them for them. And I think we can pray. And I think we can set aside time to see him move. And this next week, church week, is, that's what it's all about. We call it church week because we're going to have church every day for a week. Because we're going to meet at noon, Monday through Friday for prayer, and then at 6.30 for service for a week to see what he wants to do. I have a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon, and she, um, a couple years ago, she tore her ACL. And I saw her like three weeks after she had torn her ACL, and she was walking. And I was like, what in the world are you doing? And she was like, oh, you can rehab very quickly if you want it bad enough. Church week. I think it could be rehab for many of you, quicker than what years of Sunday morning could do. I think you could jump from stage one to like whatever, <laughs> quicker. I think church week could be a time where like going to camp as a teenager or your sports team where we bond together more than we ever have and we get more equipped and ready for the battle ahead. See, church week is not about a week of seeing God do something just during that week. It's about taking a week aside to see God do something in the future. And it's not that I don't want to see God move. I do. But I'd much rather have a good week and an incredible year than an incredible week and an okay year. A year ago today... We didn't plan this timing. We're not that smart. A year ago today, I couldn't have been standing here because this stage didn't exist yet. A year ago today, I was standing right here. I kind of remember because I looked down right there. A year ago today, we had our first Sunday night service. There are probably some of you that were here that night. And we were all just giddy to see another human being, right? In person that wasn't related to us. And so we met for the first time in this building on Sunday night, and I, and I said, hey, guys, this is what we got to do. 
and said, over the next month, we have to work unlike we've ever worked before. We, like, like there are floors that need to be ripped up and put down. There are walls, tons of them, that need to be painted. There are, um, there's drywall that needs to be ripped down. Uh, there's uh, a stage that needs to be built. We've got to paint all of this. We have to build all of these sound panels on the back. We've got to take care of the landscaping outside. We've got to redo the kids' space completely and entirely, like bring it into 2020 uh, or at least like 2010. Like we've got to do stuff and we've got to work and it's going to be almost miraculous miraculous to see it happen. And we have a small budget in order to do it. And by the way, we got to raise money in this month, in the middle of summer, in the middle of the global pandemic. And we don't even know who goes to our church anymore because we haven't seen anyone in person in a few months. And so this has all got to happen. And it's got to happen in like three weeks. And guess what? It all happened. And it all happened beyond what we had anticipated it happening in that moment. Because God sent people, and because you did things, and because we banded together, and we worked unlike we had ever worked before. And I said to many of you when we were done, we will never be able to physically or practically get that much done in a single month ever again in the history of our church. Because it was just the Spirit of God coming in, and people showing up, and painting, and flooring, and this, and that. And a year later, we don't have that practical, physical work to do. But I will stand in this exact same spot and tell you, there is still much work to do. And this time it is not in the physical. It is not in the practical. We have painted. We have floored. We have done all of that stuff. I'll also tell you, we don't need to raise any money. But I can tell you that there is still work to do, and it is spiritual work this time. It is prayer. It is fasting. It is pursuing the heart of God. It is lifting up our hallelujah. It is singing unto his name. It is proclaiming his unending gospel. It is telling a world in need, hop off of the train and come on over here because there is a gospel of good news. And it is a beautiful name. And we want you to know it. We want you to bow before it and not the God of the Amorites. And so we'll set aside a week and we'll see where it goes. And we'll surrender it unto him. So as you're able, please join us this week, 6.30, every night. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll preach. And we'll see what happens. We'll take communion together. The doors of the church will be open at noon every day. You can pray from noon to one. Um, we'll just be in here in the auditorium. And then 6.30 service will start. Starting on Tuesday, if you want to get here early and um, eat dinner with church friends, the kitchen will be open. You can make dinner or bring dinner or sit out in the classrooms and hang out before service starts. I was joking about this, but hey, if anyone wants to camp out on Thursday night, you know, there's a lot of land. Just shower before you come to service. Man, it's been a, it's been a year, hasn't it? A lot God has done in our church. A lot that's happened. 
I am exceedingly grateful for this church family. I'm exceedingly grateful for what God is doing and forming here. And I guess today starts year two in this building as a church family. So let's start it off right. I think that's all I have to say, really. Um, if you want someone to pray with you before you leave, our elders will be up here. They'd love to pray with you. If you want to worship God with your giving, you can put cash or check in the box or give online. Otherwise, I'm going to read Psalm 63 as a departure. I'm reading Psalm 63 because this is the psalm we're going to go to every day. And I'd encourage you to read it on your own. We're going to go to this psalm every day um, during church week. So here's our ending. We'll pick, it, we'll pick this way up tomorrow. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And so, Lord, as we end today, We eagerly anticipate tomorrow. And Father, I am praying that in spirit and in truth, we would worship you this week. Build your church, edify it during this week, use it to bring us together and use it to equip your saints for the work of ministry. Build us together as your family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connectcard. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash giveonline. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.